1987, a 20-year-old woman was working at a um, laundromat in Tulsa, Oklahoma, when a man came in and um, grabbed hold of her and bound her and threw her in a, a restroom in the, in the laundromat. He left for a bit and then came back, put her over his shoulder, carried her to his car, drove her to a remote location and abused her physically. The man who was um, apprehended and sentenced to 298 years was named Arvin McGee. Mr. McGee's conviction rested largely on the victim's identification of the man. The, she had, um, had picked him out of a photographic lineup, but it wasn't the first photographic lineup. The first time she had identified another man, and then in the second one, identified Mr. McGee. Some forensic evidence was collected that could not exclude him, though it did not exactly point to him either. He continued to maintain his, his innocence and went on trial. His first trial ended in a mistrial, and his second trial in a hung jury. And on the third trial, he was convicted and sentenced, as I said, to 298 years in prison. Thirteen years later, uh, a group called the Oklahoma Indigent Defense System arranged for DNA testing of forensic evidence that wasn't uh, available at the time of his first trial. And so uh, the, the evidence was tested, and it was found out that he had been placed in prison um, at no fault of his own. He did not commit the crime. He was innocent. He was exonerated and released, but not after he had spent 14 years in prison. In 2002, the DNA uh, uh, database was, uh, was matched with another person who was already in prison for another crime, and he subsequently was uh, tried for this other crime and, and given a, a more lengthy sentence. If this story were an isolated incident, it would be a sad story. But it's not an isolated incident. The Innocence Project uh, is just one group uh, that is out there doing DNA testing on people who are in prison right now. And they have exonerated, to date, 249 people, 17 of whom were sitting on death row. It's not a sad story. It's a tragedy, isn't it? But for every Arvin McGee or Samuel Scott or Roy Kreiner, people who were released because of groups like the Innocence Project, there's a Ted Bundy and a Jeffrey Dahmer or a Ted Kaczynski or Muhammad Atta, people who, who have done horrid crimes, uh, the unspeakable acts of cruelty. I was watching the Discovery Channel not long ago, and I, I, I saw them do this thing in this one prison, I can't remember the name of it, where the, the people who were in there were among the worst in, in the entire country. None of them disputed their, their guilt. They, in fact, rather delighted in their guilt. They, they delighted in the barbarous acts they had committed toward, on people. And, and, and so when I think about things like the Innocence Project and, and the work that they're doing and, and the good work that they're doing, it's great, but, but just because some people are in prison wrongly, it, it would be erroneous to think that everyone who's in prison has been, uh, you know, incorrectly judged, that, that there are some who are in prison who are in prison rightly so. I mean, could you imagine if tomorrow someone said, you know, because there have been 249 people wrongly convicted in the United States, I think we should let all the prisons, prisoners go. Let's open up all the doors and they would all go out into the streets. We would all be terrified, wouldn't we? The prisons do us a, a service. They, they protect innocent, truly innocent people. But 
could you imagine? I mean, just for the sake of argument, just for the sake of imagination, could you imagine that someone had developed an antidote? That you give this antidote to every criminal and suddenly they become different people. They become morally decent people. They become righteous. What if we could give, what if we could give criminals an antidote that would turn them into saints? Well, I mean, we would, we would be stocking up on that, wouldn't we? We'd be like the H1N1 vaccine. I mean, we'd be buying more than we could, we could give to people. I mean, if we, could turn, if we could turn a criminal into a Mother Teresa, oh my, wouldn't that be a great, wouldn't that be a great thing? And I think that, that maybe is what Luke's Gospel is about today. It's about this change that can happen in the lives of people. And Jesus begins by preaching from Isaiah 61. In order to understand what he's saying about Isaiah 61, though, we've got to kind of think about what Isaiah's saying. In Isaiah, he's preaching, the, the prophet Isaiah is preaching to the people who are in captivity in, in Babylon. He's saying that they're going to end their days in prison in Babylon. Now, it wasn't a real prison, but it was an exile. The Babylonians, um, their, their goal of, of controlling lands in the ancient Near Eastern world was to invade and take people captive. Exile them from their homes to Babylon. Uh, there they wouldn't be, uh, there would be no guerrilla upsurges. There would be no rebel attacks. You could control a land by moving out the people who would be a threat to you. They invaded Jerusalem in the year 587, took the people of, of Jerusalem captive, sent them into exile. But for the Jerusalemites, for the people who were native to Jerusalem, this was more than just merely a, an international political situation, isn't it? This is the God of their fathers who's no longer protecting them. They're no longer living in the promised land. There's no longer that, that sense of the, the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and this privileged position that Israel has. Jesus comes along and says, the end of exile has finally happened. But this is several hundred years later. The Babylonians weren't, they were the first, they weren't the last. We've got, you know, the Jews were passed on to the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Syrians, and under Jesus, the Romans. And so when people hear him say, today is the day, today is the day of release from prison, the, the, the setting captivity is free, they're hearing him say, oh, so you're going to overturn Rome. They think in terms of political reality. When we hear this passage read, we think, oh, Jesus is going to prove his divinity by doing great signs and wonders and marvels. And neither are true. Well, both are true, but neither are really true in the way that he intends them. The end of captivity is about the end of enslavement. But it's not about enslavement to a Babylonian prison. It's not about enslavement to Gentile nations who are ruling over top of, uh, of Israel, nor is it about a real prison with real walls in our day. It's about enslavement towards a will that is bent against God. It's about a freedom that is a true freedom, a moral freedom, a freedom to, to turn toward God instead of away from Him. And so what about us? What does it mean to people like you and me? It means that we were all born in prison. St. Augustine reminds us over and over again 
that our hearts are by nature turned away from God. We don't have to teach little children to lie, do we? They do it instinctively. We don't have to teach um, uh, people to, to, uh, to hate one another. They find ways to, to, to dream up new ways of hating one another. And we think we can educate it out. We think that all we need to do is to train them. We have never been more, more learned than we have in the last century, have we? Never has human being, never has there been a time in history where human beings have accumulated more knowledge than we've accumulated, accumulated in the last hundred years. And what did we do with all of our vast knowledge? We invented new ways to kill more people quicker. We invented atomic weapons to level entire cities. You know, every time we have an advance in knowledge, it's as if our advance in knowledge is so destructive. Why? Because we all are born with hearts that are turned away from God. We're all criminals. And someone says, I beg your pardon, I've never committed a single criminal act in my life. Well, maybe not. Maybe none of us are going to go hold up a gas station on our way home. Hopefully not. But we have all created criminal acts. We've all rebelled against God, every single one of us. Our law-breaking instincts infect our relationships and our institutions. They harm our faith and our values. We become, as it were, our own gods. We may wallpaper ourselves differently, but we're all born into the same condition. And it's the condition to which Jesus says, I proclaim release. An end of captivity, a setting free of the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind. This is good news to the poor, and all of us are poor. I teach this class at the university called Basic Oral Communication. It's, it's a speech class. Um, you know, universities, you can never just call it speech, but it, it's, a, it's a public speaking class. And, and it's usually, it's a sophomore level, it's, it's the uh, student's first uh, foray into public speaking. Do you know that, that public speaking is the number one fear among Americans? It's actually right above death. Which means that most people would rather be the corpse at a funeral than the person given the eulogy. Um, we're fearful of public speaking, and these students are the same. And they all come with this fear. You know, they can chit-chat in the seats, but as soon as you put them up in front by themselves, suddenly they're locked up. And so my, my aim is to kind of get them comfortable in, in public speaking events. And we do this with little baby steps, you know, short speeches that are real easy. And they do a series of these short speeches, and then they have a long speech where they, they talk about a, a topic. And, and hopefully at the end of the semester, they're just a little bit more comfortable in standing up and, and delivering a, a public speech. The first speech is an introductory speech. Let us get to know you. I figure it's the one topic that everyone knows something about. And so it shouldn't be hard. And, and usually I get up, you know, the, the students get up and it's, um, you know, it's some guy. My name's Buff and I, I want to tell you about football. It's my favorite thing to do. Or it's, you know, hi, I'm Bridget and, you know, I'm 19 years old and I love horses and my boyfriend in America. And I think that was a Tom Petty song. I'm not sure. But, you know, they, you know, they kind of give us these, this little bit and, and, and they go through. And it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. Um, you, you know, after I've heard about, you know, scores of these, after a while, they're all the same. And then about uh, two weeks ago, a young woman gets up in my class, and she says, my name is Stacy, 19 years old. 
she begins to tell her story. And she said, when I was a, a young child, my parents got divorced. And as I grew up, I, I lived with my mother and, and spent most of my time with my mother, but I would, I would spend weekends and a day in the week with my father. And, and so I was back and forth between my mother's and my father's. My mother was uh, very um, libertine in her sensibilities, and she, I don't think she said that word, but she, that's what she meant, she, that, that my mother allowed me to do pretty much what I want, but my, my father was really strict. And so as I became a teenager, I decided I didn't want to really spend time with my father anymore. And so I wouldn't be there when he came to pick me up, and I would make sure that I was gone when it was time to visit. That way I could stay with my mom, and she would pretty much let me do whatever I wanted. And she said, I started to get involved in drugs and alcohol and spent a lot of my life in this kind of partying, uh, you know, just freewheeling lifestyle. And she said, one night we were partying well into the night, and, and I think she said I passed out about 3 o'clock in the morning. And she said, and I woke up a few hours later staring down the barrel of a gun. And I was shot twice in the neck. She went on to tell a story about uh, the fact that there were uh, six other people in the home. Her mother and her grandmother, her grandfather, her brother, her brother's girlfriend and another friend. And all of them were killed except for her. And I was blown away. This wasn't, I love horses, my boyfriend in America too. This was a girl who had been through more tragedy than I could possibly imagine. She said, I spent weeks in the hospital, and I got out, and I went to live with my dad, because all my family was gone. And she said, and somewhere along the way, I went to church, and I began to realize that God was real. And I put my trust, and I asked Christ to come into my life, and she said, I believe that the Lord spared me for a reason. And I'm not really altogether sure what that reason is right now. But I believe he's real and I know he's at work in my life. And I thought to myself about a prisoner being set free in an ironic sort of way. Yes, a tragedy, no question about that. But a recovery of sight to the blind and a setting of free. Uh, the, the, the Lord is at work in this young woman's life and he's at work in our lives as well. Tragedy comes to some for sure. And all of us are lawbreakers. All of us. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ has come to set us free. Amen.